This is the Indesa Members Memo, a podcast of the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association. Indesa is 100% member-owned and is your industry voice. This episode of the Indesa Members Memo is sponsored by Orisure Technologies. Orisure offers testing products for drugs of abuse and alcohol. The Intercept Oral Fluid Drug Test is the first and only FDA-cleared oral fluid laboratory-based drug test for the nine most requested drugs of abuse. Intercept is simple to use with an easy collection procedure and a collection time of only five minutes. While being the number one recognized brand in laboratory-based oral fluid testing since 2000, the specimen is collected on-site but is then sent to a lab for testing. Companies get the convenience and immediacy of oral fluid testing, but also solid and defensible lab results. You don't sacrifice the accuracy of reliability of your current testing program. You simply eliminate the need to collect urine. Indesa is proud to have Orisher as our first official sponsor of the Indesa Members Memo podcast. Thank you, Orisher. Check out their website at www.orisher.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Indesa Members Memo. I'm Joe McGuire, the Executive Director for the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association, and I'm so glad that you're joining our podcast today. We hope that you'll do this every Wednesday. Um, of course, you can always go back and catch previously recorded episodes by searching us wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I am very excited to welcome our guest, Mr. Bill Current. Bill, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Good, Joe. Thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm really excited. Me too. And listen, we have a lot of people that are new to our industry that have been joining our podcast, and I mean brand new baby collectors. Um, We seem to, through the COVID uh, experience, the whole pandemic, we have attracted a lot of folks who have a history in phlebotomy, and they're um, starting up new businesses in our industry. So we have a a wave of people who are brand new. For those who've been around a while, you're a staple in our industry, and they're like, oh, we know who Bill is. But you know what? There's a, a large population of us that don't know. So I would like for you to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about who you are and then about current consulting and what you guys do. Sure. Thank you, Joe. Well, again, my name is Bill Current, and I'm the founder of the Current Consulting Group. I got my start in the drug testing business in the late 1980s. I was working for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and I was made the staff director of a coalition they had created called the Institute for a Drug-Free Workplace. Well, I was the one staff member, uh, so I was just directing myself, but I was the director of the, or the uh, staff director of the Institute for a Drug-Free Workplace, and our purpose, our mission back in those days was to try to influence in a positive way on behalf of employers, state drug testing laws. In the mid 1980s, there had been a series of state laws that had been enacted that in many cases were not very friendly to the employer community. Mm -hmm. And so our objective was to go back and try to get these sort of not anti-drug testing laws, but restrictive drug testing laws to get those changed to become more employer friendly and to make sure that future legislation was also more employer friendly. And so that was our mission. The Institute for Drug-Free Workplace lasted for several years. Before it it, uh, ceased to exist, I had left and become the executive director of the American Council for Drug Education, and then later started uh, the current consulting group. 
And so we, we founded the group in 1998. Uh, it was, uh, in those days, it was called WFC and Associates. Those are my initials. And um, again, in the beginning, it was just me. Uh, now we've grown to have a staff of many people, uh, drug testing experts from different uh, disciplines within the drug testing industry. Uh, we do a lot of different things at the current consulting group. We, we write policies, we provide training, anything to do with helping third-party administrators and laboratories and manufacturers of drug testing products provide their services to their clients. We don't do drug testing. We don't provide MRO services. We don't do collections, et cetera, but anything to support that from writing policies to training supervisors to um, developing marketing materials and, and things of that nature. And one of the things that we do that I'm very proud of is that we conduct an annual survey of the drug testing industry. Yes, absolutely. 23rd year, so we're very, very pleased, very proud of that. It's become something I think a lot of people in the industry look forward to. Well, that was a perfect nutshell and, and sparked um, about 20 questions. I can't ask all of them for time, but um, first of all, let me go back to your start with the chamber. My, how things have changed. Um, you have seen our culture shift um, in huge ways since that time from uh, advocating for workplaces um, to be able to have safe and drug-free environments um, and then that becoming sort of a cultural norm. Now we're back to, um, again, employers' rights are being threatened constantly as states change laws, but where is the advocacy coming from? It's certainly not coming from the chamber, would you say? Yeah. And I think a lot of it is, um, it has to do with uh, who's really sort of lining the pockets of these organizations and uh, what their objectives are. So, you know, my old alma mater, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, is, is very different than it used to be. Um, I wasn't there a long time, but back in those days, it was 100% employer-driven. In fact, the creation of the Institute for Drug-Free Workplaces Coalition uh, came out of a, um, uh, a need uh, that was expressed by some of the major corporate members of the chamber, Exxon, um, Motorola, IBM, et cetera, saying, you're the chamber, you represent us, you've got to do something about these uh, restrictive drug testing laws that are being passed. And so that's how the chamber reacted in those days. It was all about protecting the employer's rights. And, you know, again, without getting into all the political details, it really has a lot to do with, you know, who's, who's, uh, whose pocket are you in, you know? Who's so true. So bills? true. Yes. And it is a political animal. I hope that um, we'll be able to one day again, see these large corporations stand up and say uh, enough is enough, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, because, you know, especially with changing marijuana laws, it's such a political football that people kind of want to stay out of the conversation. But at some point, um, the, pain, the pain points will get to be greater than um, appeasing the most popular notion or the populist notion. So uh, we'll get there. I, I fully believe we'll get there. You know, what we're doing right now is not sustainable and uh, safety will have to overrule some of this, um, you know, current trending. But, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what it takes. You know, Joe, I, I agree with you completely. And one of the um, 
One of the real serious cautions I have for our industry right now is uh, don't believe the hype. Don't believe, you know, back in the, uh, what was it, in the 80s, there were a series of commercials on TV about cocaine and it was called the big lie. I think mm -hmm. marijuana and the legalization of marijuana is built on a big lie. And unfortunately, there are even people in our industry, in the drug testing industry, who have bought into it and are out there advocating a sort of more lenient approach to a drug-free workplace program in light of the fact that marijuana is quote unquote legal, uh, people who use marijuana are really not uh, a danger to the safety of the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. And so they advocate a sort of a looser approach to the drug-free workplace program. And I think nothing could be more dangerous than that. And I think we'll, we'll work our way as an industry. I think we'll work past that. But I think right now, Joe, I think there's even you know, some dissension within the industry that is confusing people. And when you talk about the fact that so many people in our industry are new to drug testing, they're, you know, they're the future of this industry. Um, there's, a, there's sort of a lack of historical knowledge uh, that goes back to when this was really a hot potato issue and the advocacy was all in one direction to protect employers' rights to do drug testing and to address issues like the employee on the job under the influence of marijuana and how dangerous that is. So I think as an industry, we need to really step back, take a good fresh look at the history and the reality and not buy into some of the misinformation and outright lies that are out there, even within our industry, but in society in general. I wholeheartedly agree. And that is one of the reasons I'm so excited to interview you today. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of doing a series of interviewing people that have been around in our industry for, you know, 30 years, 20, 30 years, because we need um, to understand this history and the reality. And it's one of the reasons that we keep focusing at our annual conference on telling the truth about uh, cannabis and marijuana and legalization and whatnot. A lot of folks get frustrated that we seem to um, have this touch point with the political, what they consider a political conversation. But let's face it, it's a drug. We're talking about drugs. <laughs> we have to know. <laughs> we have to know about this drug and what it does. And we're responsible for uh, signs and symptoms or reasonable cause training. And we have to tell the truth. So in order to tell the truth, we have to understand the truth. So I just think um, hearing from you and continuing to have this conversation is so very important. You're exactly right. Um, so now getting into current consulting and what you do, I do want to hear about the survey, but um, I didn't hear you mention, and this is going to be a little tricky maybe for some people, um, because Indesa has an educational program, um, and, and we're building that out uh, every day. But you also have an educational program, and that's something that's newer for current consulting, right? So tell us about your online training program. And some folks might feel that this is highly competitive, and I'm uh, going against the grain of selling in Daisy's training to our customers. But the reality of it is, everybody's got a training program. Um, they they need one. It's it's what we do. And our I was telling a new member the other day. He was worried about joining an association when his competitors are. And I said. We're all competitors and we're all friends. It's a small community. So, you know, we're not going to play those games. <laughs> so tell us what that looks like for you guys. It's an online training portal. Is that correct? That's right. And, and you're right. It is a small community, but it's a big universe There's mm -hmm. for all of us to exist. Um, 
and and you know part of it is um, you know sort of what's the objective or the goal of the end user, the buyer of these services, and and what other types of um, support services do they need? And so I personally um, look at it as sort of a um, uh, a, a positive in a way, and maybe not everybody who you know offers online training like I do uh, feels that way. But I don't see a, a challenge or an oppor or a negative opportunity there. I see it as a positive opportunity. Our training courses are probably very much like other people's training courses um, in in the sense that they cover the same topics: signs and symptoms training for supervisors, DER training. Um, et cetera, et cetera, all the typical things that you would see. And over the years, um, I've seen a lot of different training providers come and go. They don't all last. And so, uh, you know, sometimes I'll go to a conference and I'll see somebody exhibiting and they're offering online training courses. And, you know, the first inclination might be to say, oh, great, another competitor. But I've seen so many come and go that okay. I don't really worry about it. And with the current consulting group now being in existence for 23 years, um, you know, I think that says a lot about the fact that we're here to stay, we're gonna keep going. Uh, we even have a sort of a long-term plan for the company that goes beyond even perhaps when, when I'm involved, although I have no intention of not being involved. But, you know, the company has been in business for a long time. And, you know, I was hesitant at first, Joe, I'll tell you the truth, hesitant to really sort of embrace providing these services because I thought there was a lot out there already, the, the online training, um, and not speaking to the Endesa product, because I think that's good. But I, you know, speaking candidly, right? Yes, yes. Between you and me with the rest of the world. Right. There's a lot of stuff out there that's just not up to par. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so I think that there's room for Endesa and Current Consulting Group and a couple of others that I, that I really like. We got, we had a client call us and, and uh, they were torn between our product and, and a competitor's product. And we did a little bit of look at the competitor's product and we found out that they hadn't updated their courses in years. And so I think there's just a lot of that out there and right. the, the better quality providers and the better quality products sort of rise to the top and endure and last. And so in that regard, there may be a lot of competition, but most of it's not real competition. Right. Um, and, and the stuff that is really good and, and is competition to us or to Endace is, um, is, you know, is kind of a, a small number. Right. And I think for that small number of providers, there's, there's room for all of us. I completely agree with that. And one thing I'll say about um, you, Bill, is you are always um, so precise in making sure that the people that come um, into the current consulting group are experts in our industry. So we need training programs that are robust, that are detailed, that are, uh, you know, one of the things when you say a lot of the stuff that out there is not really uh, a competitor, um, there's just some low quality, you know, and non-updated and just like touching the kind of the high points, but not getting down into the depth of the day-to-day. -day. And, and it is unfortunate, you know, we still, DOT still says over and over and over again, and it's in the literature. It pains me when I see it printed in the literature that the weak point is the collector in the, in the process. That's a training issue. 
you know, no. and so then you, then you get a trainer that has not been trained correctly. And now they've, they've got, you know, however many people they've trained and they're all weak collector. It's just unfortunate. So yeah, your goal and our goal is to improve that collections process and do whatever we can to do it. And some type of training will fit one person's learning style and some will fit another but um you know i'm always happy to to support you guys whatever you're doing because you know what you're an indesa member and um we're proud to have you as members and um we are different in than than what has historically been seen in membership associations in our industry because we want our members to be able to say hey this is who we are and what we do and and to promote them and um so we're basically you know, we see it as our products are here for those folks who um, can't find other options or aren't familiar with other options. But anyway, I'm, I'm glad that you had a chance to talk about that. Now, um, it, so years ago, you started this industry survey. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. I'm like, oh, you have this great newsletter and you, and you do policy. And I really want to talk about policy. But the survey is so fabulous. If we run out of time, I want to make sure we, we talk about the survey. How long have, has Current Consulting been doing the um, industry survey? Well, we started in 1999. I was asked to give a presentation at one of the association conference. We don't mind mentioning other associations. No, we? don't mind at all. Yeah, uh, we, I think it's a pretty friendly grouping with, mm -hmm. uh, especially with Endace and Sapa. Mm -hmm. Sapa was really all there was back then. And I was asked to give this um, presentation at the 1999 conference in Long Beach, California. And they wanted me to talk about drug testing in the new millennium, right? We're about to turn the corner. And so um, I thought, Gosh, you know, I mean, that's a lot of opinionating and projecting and predicting. And so I was speaking to a friend of mine, a guy in the industry who was very well known. He's retired now, Mac Allen. He was with National Safety Alliance and was instrumental in starting SAPA in the early days with Gary Glisson. And I said, Mac, you know, what, how do I get out of this mess I'm in? I'm going to be speaking to an audience of a bunch of know-it-alls who are going to know more than me, maybe, and that are going to, you know, sort of object to my predictions. And mm -hmm. Mac said, do a survey why don't you survey some of these people and then present their predictions and then nobody can really argue with you and so that's what i did that first survey was in 1999 and and you know i always tell endace or anybody else that schedules me to speak try not to put me on the last slot on the last day on a weekend in california or a weekend in las vegas you know right so i was scheduled to make i was given the last slot on a friday at four o'clock, um, the last day of the conference, and SAPA scheduled a board of directors meeting during my presentation. Oh no! <laughs> and so I didn't really expect anybody to be there. And uh, as as fate would have it, I had my mother. Uh, she lived in Southern California. I had her with me that day because I was going to spend the weekend with with her there. And uh, I'm just thinking it's going to be a small gathering, and the room was packed. Full. Everybody wanted to know the results of this survey. And so the presentation was a great success. I don't know what happened in the board of directors meeting, but I uh, caught on to this, you know, I think need within the industry to do this kind of thing. And so we've done it every single year since then, even in 2000, although um, we didn't get invited to present it at a conference in 2000, but we did it in 2000. We've done it every year since then. And um, 
we've added an annual survey on an, uh, what we call the employer drug testing survey. And so that's in its fifth year. And for several years, we did an international drug testing survey. That was a lot more unwieldy, a little harder to really pull together because I was interviewing people all over the world for, for those types of things. And some of them were very, very cooperative and, and friendly and others were you know, very difficult to get together. And then you're dealing with different countries, with different cultures, with different laws, and you couldn't really compare Australia to Germany. It, you know, right. it was not apples to apples. So we discontinued the international survey, but we continued to do the industry survey, 23rd year, and then the employer survey in its fifth year. And, and let me just give a shout out to um, organizations like Endesa who welcome our survey results, who create um, opportunities for us to present last year at the Endesa conference in Jacksonville, Florida, the last conference before COVID shut us all down, right? I remember That's right. Through the hotel and there were hand sanitizer stations and, but we weren't wearing masks or social distancing or anything like that. Right. But I was asked to present uh, the results of our employer survey at that conference. It was, it had just come out and I was really grateful for that because uh, the employer survey doesn't really have a home. And so Endesa made that possible. And then all of a sudden, you know, we couldn't get together and meet anymore. So that was really sort of the last, um, the last time we got to present to a legitimate in-person audience uh, was at the Endesa conference last year. Yeah, and it's so weird. Um, you know, we, we're actually, we were the last and we're going to be the first one out of the gate again in May. Um, and it's, boy, we've just been all over the map on is, you know, should we do this? But um, I think it's, I think it's great timing. Uh, the state of Missouri, we're in St. Louis this year, the state of Missouri has been wonderful with this. The precautions that the hotel is taking are extraordinary. This, this hotel has two conference levels, but in order to keep social distancing intact, our one conference is taking up the whole facility. And um, so everything is fully social distanced. And we were there in October and they actually had a conference going on in October. And uh, we were completely impressed with the efforts. I mean, like even the hotel rooms, there's an empty room in between every residential hotel room where you sleep. Um, and, uh, you know, that and, and the rooms sit empty for 48 hours before a new person comes in after they've been sanitized. I mean, it's just extraordinary, but we do have a full virtual component as well. So, um, yeah, we were so happy to, that we were able to have you and, um, you know, I, I am very intrigued by the employer survey. How have you been able to get employers to participate? Because that does seem like it's a huge challenge. It is. And one of the things that we do is we invite uh, companies in our industry to help offset the cost through corporate sponsorships. <clears throat> so companies like Quest and Orisher, Abbott, Disa, uh, CRL have been uh, corporate sponsors of the survey. And many of those companies, not all of them, but many of those companies will allow us to use their client list, right? This is a very precious commodity, this product. Mm -hmm. Um, to reach out to employers directly. And so we will, we will usually do that. Um, we have very strict contracts in terms of not being able to use those lists for anything else. And then after the conference, we have to return the list, which you know, it's on the honor system, but we, 
we delete it from our systems entirely. Um, and that gives us, especially with the, the, the TPAs, that gives us a real diverse audience of employers to, to survey. And so when you look at the results of our industry survey versus the employer survey, the employer survey will go out to tens of thousands of companies. The industry survey will go out to thousands of companies, um, you know, because our industry is obviously, obviously smaller than the employer community. Um, so we get really good results from both of them. One thing that I'll say about the employer survey is that, um, you know, years and years ago, as part of one of our annual surveys, we asked TPAs, who influences employers the most when it comes to making drug testing decisions? No surprise, the TPA said, the TPAs are, have the greatest influence in that process, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, but I have been so impressed over the last five years with the employer survey at how much these employers, you know, whether it's a program manager, an HR manager, a, a safety specialist, because they, they'll tell us their, um, their title with, in the survey. I'm so impressed with, with how much they know and how much they um, really guide their programs internally. And it's probably uh, maybe not a popular thing to, to say within our industry, but I think the day is going to come when a lot of employers will manage their own programs, not without the help of the TPA. I think the role of the TPA is eternal. It's never going away. But in the early days of drug testing, back in the late 80s, the early 90s, a lot of the big corporations especially had the expertise on staff to manage their drug testing programs, either through their medical department, their legal department, safety departments, but some you know, some expertise within the company to be able to do that. And then there was this sort of migration to, you know, sort of turning it all over to a third party. Mm -hmm. And we saw, you know, growth in the third party administrator segment of our industry. And I think maybe going forward, we'll see a little bit of a shift back. I don't think it's going to be a major shift back, but I think a lot of companies will do that. And part of the reason I, I say that is I think COVID just sort of forced us all forward 10 years in 12 months. And well, for sure. I, and I think a, a huge piece of this is that there is now so much credible information accessible electronically. You know, you can go to the ODAPSI website and get the rules and HHS and SAMHSA for policy and whatnot. I mean, you can do this all online and people have been forced to um, turn to their electronic resources, um, not completely un unrelated, but um, I was I was married for 30 years to a man in in insurance and in technology and uh, the the company that was our um, life for so many years as a family was USAA and they they're the insurers over the military and um, I remember for 10 years USAA was saying guide the customer to the website try to force them to the website so they can print their own insurance cards so they can you know read their policy so they don't have to spend hours and hours and hours with someone on the phone reading it to them or printing it out and mailing it to them and it was it was a good decade of really like forcing people to go to their electronic resources well right now that's what you have to do and so in our industry it's kind of you're right it's sort of forced people and i, I think for larger companies that has been the way for a long time it's the small business owner i think that we're it's not so much educating them about the drug testing and how it works it's actually convincing them that they even need to care 
I think that's sort of the role of the TPA almost, in my opinion, is to go out into your community, find the small business owner who is clueless that they're having huge people problems, likely because there's drugs involved in the workplace, and getting them to understand that this is a component that they must pay attention to as a business owner. It, it, it's not so much um, helping people to become experts at you know the, the program that they do have because they already are. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, Joe, absolutely. And that's such a good point to bring up. And sometimes when you discuss these things like, um, you know, some of the sort of uh, avant-garde, really cutting edge stuff like telehealth collections or oral fluid testing or, um, you know, uh, some of these uh, software management programs like Drug Pack or I3 Screen or, or Red Arrow, you know, how they make things so much easier nowadays for the employer. And um, I think sometimes within our industry, there's a tendency to feel a little bit of a threat from these advancements. And my, my advice to the industry to, you know, when I, I gave a presentation on oral fluid testing to an audience of TPAs, and there was a lot of pushback because one of the advantages to oral fluid testing is that the collection is different, it's easier. You don't necessarily have to use the, uh, an offsite collection site, et cetera, you can, but there's, there's uh, flexibility. And so there was pushback and my, my response to that was, don't look at it as a threat, look at it as an opportunity and get out there ahead of the curve because there'll be a lot of your competitors who will not adapt and adopt. And if you're out there with, with telehealth collections or this or that or whatever, you know, because you're forward thinking, then you've secured your market share and you're probably gonna grow it. The industry is right. change. You know, Joe, that takes me back to that 1999 presentation that I made on the future of drug testing in the new millennium. And one of the questions was, in the future, who will buy drug testing and how will they buy it? And if I was going to do that same question this year, I would say, who's going to buy drug testing, how will they buy it, and then how will they administer it? Um, because I think so many things are changing and it just makes sense, right? We, um, if I don't want to, I can order my groceries online, pay online, either have them delivered to my house or have somebody bring them out to my car in the parking lot of the grocery store. Well, is that, is that ever going to go away? That is now, of course, my wife likes to walk through the store and, and as she says, Target will let me know what to buy today. You know, yes. <laughs> that's our joke, right? Or you go to Costco and it's the $200 club because you can't get out, out of there without spending $200. Correct. The point is that we're, we're doing many things differently. COVID has forced us to do some things differently and they're actually better or they're at least as good as the way we were doing it. So is it going to go away? I don't think so. And I think, I think so. Said for drug testing and the challenge for our industry is to sort of, you know, look forward and see, you know, what's going to change back to the way it was and what's never going to change back to the way it was. And you are so right. This, this issue with oral fluid testing continues to be a you know, hot button for TPAs. Uh, but when we look at what happened during the pandemic and we look at safe collections, and you did a webinar for us um, last year on COVID collections, effective and safe, or I'm probably not saying the title right, but it's still we still have that available for people to listen to. Such a powerful, um, learning tool, that webinar, um, because it, it oral fluid, 
gave us an outlet for people to use their own device um, as they did the, the collection. And we have to all remember, I mean, we've got to get our priorities straight and, and the pandemic helped us to a degree. Our priority is safety. So when we're looking at safety, workplace safety, family safety, community safety, and collections safety, we've got to accept oral fluid testing as a huge solution to some of these barriers that we face and, and ask ourselves, where can this take us in the future? So I completely agree with that. So I have- well, Joe, let me just add one thing. That's the, that's, the real, um, that's the real distinguishing characteristic of Endesa is that you weren't born as an organization out of sort of the past. You really represent in many ways, and I'm a big supporter of SAP, I'll admit that. Sure. Uh, but, you're, but you really are made up of some very forward-thinking people who came together and said, let's do this differently, and I think that's what Endesa brings to the table. Well, thank you for that. And, and we do, um, SAPA is, is our sister organization, our big sister, I guess, and, um, or brother, if, if you want to that way. But um, we are so grateful to the support that we've had from the SAPA community. And it's really just been um, a, a nicely symbiotic in so many ways. And early on, we said, you know, there's things that you do best and we don't want to play in that um, sandbox because that's your expertise. We're over here doing this, and and we just had some lovely conversations that it, that have been so fabulous. And um, their director and Kelly has been just a true friend to me. Um, you know, I've been in the industry for a long time. She's not from the industry, but she's great at association management. That's her history. So I, it's just one of those things where I can pick up the phone and say, "How are you? What's going on? How's things?" Um, we're doing this and can you guide me on this? And it's, it's just been, that's how I would love to see the industry work, you know, someday in total, we'll get there. Um, but I wanted to ask you, for those who are not familiar with the annual survey, tell, give us just a little bit of a snapshot of what the survey is about and, and what kind of questions you're asking. I'm hoping that we can filter a new group of people to take your survey every year so that um, they can start familiarizing themselves with Because I, when I take the survey, I learn from it. Um, I always like seeing the link come up so that I can go, ooh, what questions are we asking now, you know? Um, so tell us for those who are unfamiliar uh, what the, the industry survey is about. Okay, so the industry survey is just what its title says. It's, an it's a survey of people in the drug testing business. So TPAs, labs, MROs, collectors, consultants, lawyers, etc. And it will go out to a, a large audience. And, and we ask many of the same questions from year to year to year, and we have for 20 plus years as a way to try to track certain trends. But what we're looking at is to try to identify sort of where certain things are going that affect sales and marketing of drug testing. So I, I don't pretend that it's, um, you know, sort of a Gallup organization type of survey or anything like that. It's a survey of the industry that's intended to help the industry. Um, and you can use the results to, uh, you know, sort of help you with your sales and marketing strategy for the coming year or anything that it's, it's intended to help the industry see trends and be able to respond to trends in a way that's helpful to an individual company, whether it's a small, you know, five person TPA or, you know, one of the bigger mega corporations in our industry. 
And so we ask questions like, um, uh, you know, and, and keep in mind, it's, you know, we'll do the survey in 2021 and it will be asking questions about 2020 activity. Um, the, the employer survey just went out or actually it's going through, it's refining right now. But we'll ask questions like, um, how did um, oral fluid testing uh, sales compare to the previous year? Did the release of the oral fluid mandatory guidelines by SAMHSA uh, result in more or fewer people requesting information about oral fluid testing? Um, what's the status of uh, point of collection testing? Uh, is it different than the, the past year? And one of the questions we always ask is what percentage of drug tests that you provide are DOT versus non-DOT? In the early days of my career, it was 75, 80% DOT versus non-DOT. And of course, that's all flipped around, you know, to 20% mostly DOT and 80% non-DOT. Uh, and that gives us an idea, a rough idea of the size of the industry. So if, if DOT represents 6 million drug tests a year, almost 7 million, and um, it's 15% of all drug tests, then we know that 85% is the rest of it. And it gives us an idea of how many drug tests are out there. But we do ask questions about point of collection testing because that's one of the areas that we can't measure very accurately. Um, we don't know how many devices get sold. We don't know how many get used. We don't know how many are reused uh, when the first one fails, they've got to do a second one. We ask, ask questions about hair testing or fluid testing. We've added telehealth collections to the survey for the second year. And then we ask a lot of questions about marijuana and its impact on sales. Uh, have you had clients drop marijuana from the drug testing panel? Uh, do you anticipate uh, losing business because of the legalization of marijuana. And one very interesting question, it's multiple choice, you can pick as many of the responses as you want, is what, is, what are the main issues affecting your business when it comes to marijuana? And surprisingly, we have companies say that testing for marijuana is illegal in my state. Wow. Testing for marijuana is not illegal anywhere. Right. I mean, restrictions in place in some places, right? Conditions, I'll call them. But there's a percentage of people in, in the industry that think that testing for marijuana is illegal, not legally permitted in their state. And so there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of misunderstanding out there. And so the results of the survey will tell us what percentage of people think testing for marijuana is illegal in their state, right? Drug testing professionals, uh, but it gives us an opportunity to say, you're wrong. Drug testing is actually legal in all 50 states and then we can address those misunderstandings and those misconceptions. And then Joe, probably the most uh, popular part of the survey is what we call the brand, brand name recognition survey. It's a survey within the survey and we ask respondents, please list in order the top three brands that come to your mind when it comes to, and then we list categories. So lab-based oral fluid, lab-based urine, instant urine, instant oral fluid, hair, collections, MRO services, et cetera. And we ask that same question in the same way from year to year to year. And we can show trends in terms of brand name recognition, some brands going up, other brands coming down. Why? Those companies can then look back and say, what did we do differently? What did we do better? What should we continue doing? What should we not do? And, you know, no surprise to any of us, right? Quest is the, the strongest brand. Mm -hmm. They have categories that they don't even have products in, you know. <laughs> right. 
their brand is so strong. I remember a couple of years ago, Orisher was the, the top uh, brand in lab-based oral fluid testing, but then they showed up as like the number three brand in instant oral fluid testing, which at the time they didn't have. They do have a product now, but back then they didn't even have an instant oral fluid device, and they were the number three popular brand in instant oral fluid testing. So sometimes it tells us a little bit about our industry as well, right? Yes. That we, we need to be a little bit better educated. But those are the main components of the survey. We do it a certain way, the same way, kind of year to year to year. And it's just grown in popularity. The response rate is, has gone up. We find um, that if we keep the questions to somewhere around 25 to 30, we get a pretty good response, about an 80% completion rate. If we go much above 30 questions, then the percentage of people who complete the survey starts to drop off and mm -hmm. you know, statistical science or whatever. So we try to keep the survey user-friendly, keep it to a relatively short, concise 25 to 30 questions so that they're, they can get in and out very quickly. Well, I, first of all, I have to say I have so much respect for the fact that you guys do this so well. And that comes from before I was ever in drug and alcohol testing, I was in the field of school safety. And um, we decided to do a simple pre-test and post-test on um, student audiences that we were providing education for. And I will never forget this, like experts came in from um, UCCS and UC Boulder and all of these surveying like scientists who, um, I mean, for a four question pre and post test, it took a year to develop and to get the matrix of the scoring so that you didn't have all the kids just answering the question down the middle because they didn't want to say yes or no or whatever. Uh, and then it was wildly successful and I think the program continues to this day, but I had no idea there was so, I was like, just ask a question and get an answer. There's so much more to it. And, um, but you're right. I think the most valuable thing that comes out of it is the understanding of where we need to provide more education in, in our industry and, and to help um, people like, like those state laws. And you guys do a fair amount of education on state laws. Now, are you doing that as much as you used to? Tell me where you're at with that. I've kind of lost track, unfortunately. Yeah. So when I first started the company in 1998, our core service was really policy writing. And it was me. And I had come out of a, a TPA called uh, Employee Information Services, where I was the vice president of consulting service, which was policies, training, legal information, things like that. And so I started the business, policy writing, trying to get TPAs to refer their policy business to me so they didn't have to do it, et cetera. And as part of that, I had developed a state-by-state -state series of charts on drug testing laws in that state. And I didn't sell it. It wasn't a product. It was something I used when I was writing policies. And then I get a lot of questions about it. And so we eventually created an online subscription to this database. Uh, over the years, it's become bigger and more comprehensive. And, and now it's a very sophisticated uh, program that companies can subscribe to. They can go in and search it in all kinds of different ways. And we have uh, single issue charts that go along with, you know, like if you just wanted to look at medical marijuana, for example, you could do go to the single issue chart on that. But that's a big part of what we do. I would say that's um, I would say sort of everything in our company sort of revolves around our state law database service. Uh, it informs our training, it informs our uh, policy services. Most of our, we have a compliance consulting um, 
program where companies pay a monthly retainer to be able to call us X number of hours a month without having to, you know, worry about the billing on it. And it, you know, our, our consultants use the database to answer their questions. Now companies can subscribe to it. <clears throat> and we have, you know, a couple of hundred companies that subscribe to the database service and they can go in there and look up this information themselves. Some companies just prefer to be able to ask questions of it. But Joe, thank you for bringing that up because that's really sort of the hub of our company. It's that, it's that state law database. It's, it's, um, it's beyond, you know, my level of expertise in putting together charts. It's mm -hmm. all very sophisticated on the back end. And, um, and I think going forward, um, you know, if we stopped doing this or we stopped doing that, we would always have that database service. That it's so invaluable. And people ask me on a regular basis, where can I, is there one place I can go to understand what the state laws are? And I always send them to um, your website. Tell us your website address. Well, it's currentcompliance.com. And the, and you can find uh, the database service on there, or you can go to, um, I said, currentconsultinggroup.com. I'm sorry. But currentcompliance.org is the uh, online database, and you can go there and you can subscribe to it or you can see samples of it. We have tutorials that you can walk through to see how it works, et cetera. That's all free, of course. And so, um, you know, it, I, I would say the vast majority of our subscribers are people within the industry, TPAs, labs, and things like that. But we do get end users, corporations that subscribe as well, and, and law firms also. Uh, it's just easier than for them to find that information than to have to look it up themselves through some traditional research mode. So that's currentcompliance.org, but the, the, your company is currentconsulting.com, right? Currentconsultinggroup.com. Currentconsultinggroup.com. Yeah, yeah okay. I said that wrong. So okay. it's currentconsultinggroup.com is the website, okay. and then currentcompliance.org is the database, but you can reach the database through the- Through, okay. I think that I need to be more specific when I'm giving that resource to people. So I'll have to make a note of that <laughs> for myself. Yeah. And yeah, we are going to actually, um, we're working on right now a web page um, that's a resource page for people to go to. So I need to make sure that I have the link um, to your website on our page. So I'll, I'll be reaching out to you for that soon. Um, and then the, the other thing that I wanted to get to is policy writing. Um, you know, I see a lot of folks getting into policy writing as an added um, way of, you know, making their business relevant. And yet, they're, they don't have a lot of know-how. So they'll, they'll take a template from somewhere and just uh, write a policy. Policies are so much more comprehensive than that. And I'm, I'm saying that as someone who I do a policy writing workshop for employers, and I'm not an attorney. Um, and I don't think everyone has to be an attorney, but I know you are, you, you know, that's your background. But um, I, what I'm doing in my policy writing workshop is I'm just saying, these are the components of a good policy. These are choices you need to make. These are questions you need to ask yourself so that when you do write your policy, you're informed as to what these things mean. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not giving that, I'm not writing the actual policy. I'm just basically educating them on, on why you do this and, and why it matters. Um, however, um, I, I believe wholeheartedly that those little players, um, and I say little, if you're a small business owner, a small player like a TPA, and you want to get into policy writing, 
I believe wholeheartedly that you should engage someone like Current Consulting who will, um, and I don't know what the right word is, I don't know if resell is the right word to say, but engage with an expert so that you give your client a policy that is that will hold up in court that is worthwhile that will not get them sued um, and lose et cetera et cetera can you speak to that and I know that i'm I get that I'm asking someone who does this to to say why it's so important so people might discount that but really truly from all of your years of experience in the industry things can go wrong if you don't do it this way can you speak to that sure well first let me clarify that I'm not a lawyer uh, oh okay I thought you had a legal background I'm sorry no, my son Andrew just uh, graduated from law school. Okay. I got to it, but we do have two attorneys on staff. Okay. Rand Goddard and Yvette Baker. They're both, you know, attorneys. Um, and they, Rand, we call him Randy. He does more international stuff. Yvette handles all the U.S. stuff, the DOT regulations, et cetera. And then um, Sharon Botcher, who a lot of people in the industry know from many years of being at First Advantage. Um, is sort of, I would call her like a, a drug testing policy writing machine. Um, she, uh, there was a time when I thought there could be nobody in the industry who's written more drug testing policies than I have. Um, and then we hired Sharon. And I think um, even at that point, I realized Sharon had probably written far more policies than I had written, working for First Advantage, such a big company. You know, the, and there's some other good people out there, Bill Judge, for example. Mm -hmm. Tommy Eden, although I think Tommy's a little bit more on the retired side now. Yes, he is. But, you know, there's some other good people out there, and we compete with them, I suppose. Or, or, but I have a very friendly relationship with Bill, and I, and I did with Tommy as well. Um, but we're really sort of different in the, in the sense that we, we focus on customized policies that are written to, to help a company comply with all applicable state laws. So in the early days of drug testing policy work in the late 80s, early 90s, there was like a one page that's all sort of template that you could find on even on the DO Department of Labor website, they had yes. some on there and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And it just never made sense to me. And so we, we write policies to comply with each state law. There'll be a base policy that covers everything that it can. And then when there are differences, you know, that need to be complied with in a various, in a state, depending on their law, whether it's a marijuana law or a drug testing law or a workers comp law, et cetera, then we add addendums to the policy to cover those areas. And then the base policy will refer uh, the reader to the addendum, depending on what state that they're in. So the old adage that, you know, one size fits all does not apply to testing policy work. And I've always just, I've always, we got a policy the other day, literally, that we got a policy referred to us by one of our clients. And most of our clients are TPAs that refer their policy. So it's kind of like what you said, they're, they're resellers in a way. Mm -hmm. We got a policy for a company in 30 something states. I don't remember the exact number, but let's say 35 states. And they literally had for years, a two page policy. They're in oh. 30 states and they had a two page policy and they wanted us to review the policy to let them know what they needed to update. and. We looked at it and we didn't even charge them. We, we, we said, we can't review this policy because it's not a policy. You know? Right, you know, um, 
So the audience is listening to us, but not seeing my face. Bill and I are looking at each other on Zoom, and he's seeing me grimace and (laughs) so bad. I've been saying recently, um, I addressed a group of construction, a a group of construction companies up in um, Montana and, um, you know, uh, where where state laws changed recently. And uh, I said to them, if because a lot of their guys are crossing state lines into Wyoming or this or that, or they have um, little different, they actually have locations uh, across the states. So they cross over into Utah and Colorado and, you know, all that. And I was saying to them, you must, must, must have either a policy or a section of your policy for those separate state employees based on where they live and operate out of, um, really it's where they operate out of, but um, you cannot, the the days are gone where you can have a blanket policy and a two pager is just not gonna, I I had someone submit to me for review a policy that was three paragraphs just like two years ago. And I was like, oh no, no, no. And and (laughs) I, you know, I had to take kind of a day to calm down so I didn't call and go, what are you kidding me? You know, just to be kind and supportive and this is so not going to work for you. But, and they were in a legal marijuana state and they're like, well, we think it's time to address it. Two paragraphs. Um, that just doesn't cut it these days. And, and tell us why. So you and I are in agreement there, but tell us why that doesn't cut it. Well, so let's say, for example, that you're in Florida. And that's one of your your states that you have business operations in. And in Florida, we offer a 5% workers comp premium discount if a company joins the program and then complies with the program. And so there are certain conditions that apply to companies in that program, but if they meet them through the state, they they qualify for a 5% workers comp premium discount. But some of those conditions are a little restrictive. Let's say that same company is also in Texas. Texas is one of the most drug testing friendly states in the country. And the, the restrictions or conditions that, that this company would have to comply with to get the 5% workers' comp discount in Florida are not things that they want to do everywhere else. And so in Texas, they would have a base policy. Let's say they're even headquartered in Texas. They would have a core policy based on Texas legal uh, you know, conditions. Um, and then they would have a separate policy or an addendum to the policy to meet the Florida workers' comp premium discount requirements. That way, they're able to be in compliance with with two different states at the same time, getting the advantages of both states while actually doing just a few things actually differently in one state versus the other state. Now, let's say that same company is also in California. Well, California doesn't have a state drug testing law per se, but there's a ton of case law in California that basically restricts drug testing in lots of different ways. You can still direct test in in California and you can still test for marijuana in California, but there are certain conditions that apply. And if you're a company that's not only in California, but you're in San Francisco, California, well, then you've got even additional restrictions that apply. But that doesn't mean that those restrictions in San Francisco have to cripple your program in Texas or Florida. And so you want a policy that helps you to comply with all of these things while at the same time giving you as much freedom and flexibility to run your drug-free workplace program the way that you do. And Joe, that brings me to what I think is the most critical issue facing our industry today, especially in light of the legalization of marijuana in so many states. 
which is legal defensibility. So I, true, Bill. So true. Yeah. yeah, I was just gonna say, there are only three drug testing methods that have been endorsed by the federal government. Urine testing through a laboratory for 30 plus years, oral fluid testing through a laboratory as of October 25th, 2019, and that's still in the implementation period. And then hair testing, which, you know, the, the uh, SAMHSA issued a notice of proposed rulemaking in 2020. <clears throat> Those are the only three testing methods that have been endorsed by the federal government. Let's say you're drug testing in Illinois, a very restrictive state on the medical marijuana side of the issue and recreational marijuana. So there's all kinds of different ways that an employee with a sort of a greedy attorney could try to <clears throat> sue an employer, challenge an employer's program, challenge whether an employer uh, reacted uh, legally to a drug test result for marijuana, et cetera, right? If you can go back and say, as part of your defense, that we drug test, you pick it, right? Lab-based urine, lab-based oral fluid hair testing. We drug test in compliance with federal guidelines, even though they may not apply to my company, but that we use these guidelines as the gold standard and we do it this way every single time. That attorney can never challenge the validity of your program, the integrity of your program, or the integrity of the result of a drug test because you're using one of these legally defensible drug testing methods. The challenge that we're faced with in, in, in our industry today is a lot of companies are looking for shortcuts. Yes. And they're sort of go off the trail, maybe using a drug testing method that has no history, no track record, and no legal defensibility argument. And in many states, how many states now, Joe, that have legalized marijuana? I think it's 35. Yeah, 35. So suddenly you're getting sued because you have to have a drug testing program. It would be business suicide to not have a drug testing program that includes marijuana in this era when marijuana use is skyrocketing as a result of legalization, in my opinion, mm -hmm. and the abuse of other drugs as a result of COVID. It would be business suicide not to have a drug testing program. So you put a program in place, but you're taking shortcuts and then suddenly you get sued, you get challenged and you have nothing to fall back on. You can't go and say, you know, here are the SAMHSA regulations for oral fluid testing, for hair testing, for whatever. And this is how we do it. So you can't really, there's nowhere to go for that attorney. He's got to find some other way to try to challenge your drug testing program because you've got legal defensibility behind you. And I think that's going to be the key issue for our industry going forward is helping to guide employers onto a safe path of legal defensibility when it comes to drug testing. I completely agree with you. And um, I mean, we could go on and on about that for a long time here and do a whole other, probably a series of podcasts about that. Um, so we'll probably circle around and talk about that again in the future. But uh, one thing that I you you mentioned in there briefly was it's not just right now an opiates epidemic um, and and what we're dealing with just with legalization because that's a huge I mean it's a huge component but now as a result of the pandemic we have the greatest increases in substance use in deaths related to overdoses um, and and alcohol etc that we've seen I mean, would you say historically ever? I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
um, you mentioned when you did the webinar for us last year, we have studies from post 9-11 that show that substance use continued to increase for several years. Now in this pandemic, we don't expect this just to suddenly, you know, vaccine comes out, people get vaccinated, we're, we're going to stop having this problem. Tell us a little bit about what you see happening here. Yeah, I think that the effects of the pandemic are going to stretch forward into the foreseeable future. And so we're always sort of going to be living and adjusting and being careful about that. And it's going to affect certain ways that we provide our services in the drug testing industry, but also certain ways in which employers, um, <clears throat> employers um, pro, um, administer these services in their workplace. Some things are, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're probably not going back to, okay? Um, you know, we've just found different ways to do things. I mean, I'm never going to buy groceries the way that I used to. Right. Why would I? You know, I right. suddenly have a better way to do this. But, um, you know, when you think about, and, and I'll, I'll address it from this angle, Joe, if you think about COVID safe practices in the workplace, it's not just a COVID test, a temperature test, uh, or some things that are directly COVID related. It's drug testing also, because during the pandemic, we saw evidence, and it'll be, it'll be months before the SAMHSA, annual SAMHSA results come out for their mm -hmm. survey on drug use, but we've, we've seen plenty of evidence that drug abuse skyrocketed during the pandemic as people were home, self-medicating, they were getting free money from the government, they had money to burn in some cases, not everybody needed that money, and a lot of that money was being used on drugs. We saw the first evidence of it right at the beginning when alcohol dispensaries and marijuana dispensaries were deemed essential businesses. Exactly. I mean, and so, the, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, there were studies that were coming out showing a dramatic increase in the sales of alcohol and medical marijuana. Well, they stopped putting out those studies because it, was re it got ridiculous after a while, right? Right. But it reminded us of the post 9-11 era when in the months and years after 9-11, uh, you know, 2001, that uh, the use of marijuana, alcohol, and cigarettes increased dramatically, especially in New York, in Manhattan. There was one study that came out that showed in the month following 9-11, Manhattan residents admitted that their use of alcohol, marijuana, and cigarettes, excuse me, cigarettes had increased 30% during that first month. Six months later, it had only gone down to 27%. So it not only showed that our reaction to a national disaster will lead many people to sort of self-medicate through illicit drugs and alcohol, but it also showed that those effects linger well into the future. So take that statistic, try to apply it to where we are now. The SAMHSA study came out during the pandemic for the previous year, so pre-pandemic numbers, showed a dramatic increase in marijuana use prior to the pandemic. Then, during the pandemic, we know that substance abuse went up, even if it's just 30% according to the post 9-11 studies that we have. We could add that on top of the, of the numbers that came from the, the SAMHSA study. And then add to that the fact that we're still in a pandemic. You know, I was listening to the President of the United States the other day telling me that if, if I do certain things, get a vaccine, continue to wear a mask, maybe a double or a triple mask, I'm not sure, and social distance that by July 4th, I can have two or three people over to my house for a barbecue to celebrate Independence Day, right? right. <laughs> I'm not trying to criticize the president when right. I share that. The point is that 
we're still in the pandemic. We're not going to be out of the pandemic anytime soon. There will still be lingering effects of the pandemic affecting our lives for months and months to come and our businesses as a result of that. And part of that effect, part of that lingering effect will be a continuing rise in substance abuse. Now, as the unemployment rate goes down, a lot of those people who are, who are self-medicating, hundreds of thousands of them, according to this, what we can, we can uh, uh, see from the data, <coughs> are looking for jobs again. Right. Continue pre-employment drug testing, Joe. If you're a, an employer with 100 employees and you're now ready to hire 25 more people and you advertise the fact that you no longer do pre-employment drug testing, you've just invited that 30% of the population that had increased their drug use during the pandemic to come apply for a job at your company. Absolutely. Well, when, and then once they're on your payroll, then what do you do? Then what do you do? Yeah, then you, you've got a challenge, right? And so uh, Yvette Baker from our staff, one of the two attorneys, likes to talk about two areas of the law that she thinks are going to become even more prominent in the future. One is respondeat superior, that's employers being responsible for the acts of their employees when they're functioning within the scope of their job and negligent hiring, which is an area of law that says you as an employer have to make a good faith effort to identify people who may be dangerous to society. Bill, let's do, uh, let's do a webinar on that. We are scheduled out to fall on our webinars, but let's do a webinar on that topic because I really believe that writing your policy in this day and age for the work at home scenario is absolutely critical. People need to understand that when an employee is at home in the, but their home becomes a workspace, but they're on company time, that elements of your policy must still be enforced. And I think that would go a long way to educating um, everyone that is, you know, in our sphere of influence on on the the importance of that. So let's we'll we'll talk about that later. And when you say that we're going to be experiencing the effects of this long term, um, we we just can't even comprehend. You know, we all think, well, we'll be, you know, for those who feel comfortable doing so, we'll be able to meet us in St. Louis, um, but limited number, full social distancing. Uh, but also a full virtual conference, right? So we'll, uh, many people are saying, I can't wait to get back to normal in St. Louis. I'm hearing that all the time. Can't wait to see you. Can't wait to get back to normal in St. Louis. It will, there will be nothing normal about that conference. <laughs> it will be fully social distanced, masked, hand sanitizer. We have to put people in two groups. We have to rotate their schedules. We can't all eat lunch at the same time. We can't all be in the vendor hall at the same time. We can't, I mean, it, it will be very, very different from what we're used to. But this, this happened to me the, uh, just two nights ago. I want to share it with you, and it has nothing to do with drug testing. It's just about long-term effects. Um, I had the opportunity. Uh, my, my son and, and his wife said, uh, Mom, we want to take you out to dinner. We've, I'm in Colorado. We've got some restaurants open. And um, they have a, a little 11-month-old daughter, my granddaughter. And she was born one month after we went into hard quarantine lockdown in Colorado. So, uh, you know, we could not go to the hospital. Mom and dad were totally on their own. Um, this baby is coming up on her first birthday and she's only ever known this quarantined world. 
Um, and they have kept her very much in the house and safe and, you know, um, she doesn't know the experience of going to the grocery store. She doesn't know the experience like of going to a park to play or any of those things that, that our babies experience. So we went into this little diner and, you know, we're, you know, booths are far apart from each other. We felt very good about it. And to see an 11 month old experience this world, I, we could all clearly see she was so overstimulated. It was it, and it was a diner environment, so they had the 50s music and the lights and the, you know, all that. Um, so overstimulated. But but what happened that really got me, and we, you know, we were able to distract her, and she did fine and whatever. But when we walked outside, and this is what really got me, we walked outside to leave, and um, and, and we just kind of stepped out. And, of course, she's 11 months old, so she doesn't have a mask mandate, Right. Um, this gust of wind came up and blew right into her face. And Bill, you should have seen the reaction. She raised her hands up in the air and just this joyous bliss of this wind blowing her in the face. And my son looked at me and he said, she's never experienced that before. And I was brought to tears. Yeah, I cried many times yesterday because I thought to myself, um, here we are saying we want things to go back to normal. We're excited to have that happen. But we have this little generation of children who, um, what will overstimulation look like for them? Uh, and how will, they, how will they understand this changing world and what it looks like? And they may have educational problems. Our, our kids in schools may right now with not being able to attend class, the socialization, all of those things, th those are going to lead to coping skill issues that we're not prepared to deal with. I think for decades, we could see a generation of young people coming into our workforce that are a hot mess. And we just don't have any idea what, what these ramifications are. So what we do is more important than ever before. And um, I, I heard a quote this morning from T.D. Jakes that just struck me. Of course, he's a pastor. You and I are both um, people of faith, and, and that's a you know, common theme in our lives. But he said, how can we save souls if we're not willing to save lives? And I just went, wow, I thought I want to like stencil that on my office wall um, because how can we save souls when we are not willing to save lives? In our industry, you and I every day are about saving lives. That's why we're here talking to each other. And I think our work is more important than ever before. And everything you've said today is a critical component of that. So I want you to have some closing remarks, but I, I definitely don't want to leave here without saying thank you for everything that you do, for Current Consulting Group, for your commitment to this industry, and for understanding the why. Because um, if we don't have our why, then we're just wasting time. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Joe. Um, when I was a boy growing up, I thought first I would be a baseball player. Then later in high school, when I learned to play guitar, I thought I'd be a rock star. Nice. <laughs> and then, you know, none of that worked out. So um, I migrated into journalism, and that's what I majored in, in in college. And I got a degree in journalism. I thought I'll be a sports writer, and that will be sort of 
you know, just sort of the greatest thing possible to be a professional baseball writer. Um, and there were a lot of different things that went into influencing my decision to get out of sports writing. One of them was I wanted to, I didn't want to be gone every Sunday of my life uh, uh, and not be able to go to church and not be able to be with my family on the weekends and things like that. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line was I was looking for something to do with my life where I felt like I was making a contribution to society. Was there something I could do professionally that would be helping society improve and get better? And um, I wandered into the drug testing uh, field when I was uh, uh, invited to apply for a job at the, at the US Chamber of Commerce. And I ended up getting the job. And over the years, um, I've met some of the, just the greatest people in the world in this industry, you being one of them, members of your board being among them as well. Some of our clients I've known for 20 plus years that we've had them as clients, some of the best people in the world. And I think the thing that we have in common is that yes, you know, I won't deny the fact that we're making money and we've got to get paid for the things that we do. And there's just no way around that. That's just the nature of life. But I think the vast majority of people, especially sort of the old school people that have been doing this for a while, we, we just got lucky and we're doing something that helps to improve society. And we're committed to that. We, you know, we all do things. We don't talk about it, but we all do things for free often. You know, sure. we get asked to speak at something or write something for somebody or talk to somebody. You know, it's not all getting paid. There's plenty of, you know, pro bono work. But I came to the conclusion years ago, Joe, and I think it applies to the members of Endesa, many of them, maybe most of them, that what we're doing is having a far greater impact on society than a lot of other things that people are doing right now. And that the drug-free workplace initiative, sort of generally speaking, and drug testing specifically, has done more to combat the spread of and the devastating effects of drug abuse than any other anti-drug initiative or program since the beginning of time. I, mean, I agree. At all to, to the Nancy Reagan, just say no. I think it takes all of these things to, to really you know, move the ball forward. But I don't think there's any, been any single law or initiative that's had a greater positive impact than the DOT drug testing regulations, not just within the transportation industry, but how it has influenced all drug testing to be better and to help people. And the bottom line is that after 30 plus years of doing this, drug testing has proven to be a powerful deterrent to drug use and an effective way to identify people that need help. And to that end, it makes me feel good about what you and I and many others are doing for our careers. I think we're having a positive impact on society um, through drug testing. I completely agree. And let's, let us never forget that that those DOT laws were born out of tragedy caused by drug use, right? And so what a, I hate to see us go backward and have to experience more tragedy to come back full circle. Um, so I, I'm glad that I'm glad that I get to be with you beating the drum that that we beat every day. Um, it's it's such a privilege and an honor to work with you to speak with you and to get this time with you today. So thank you for giving me that time. Um, it is so precious. And uh, it's just been a great honor to to be able to sit and visit with you today and for our members to get to know Bill current. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Bill. Thank you, Joe, very much. And thank you, Endesa, for all that you do.
I appreciate that. So for all of you listening to our podcast, make sure that you like, subscribe, and share so that we can share these important words with more people in our industry and um, check us out on future episodes of the Indesa Members Memo. Thank you for listening to the Indesa Members Memo. Subscribe to hear all of our podcasts and join Indesa to access all of our professional industry resources. Visit us at ndasa.com.